just a second with my very special guest, my old pal Steve Gorman. Thanks for tuning in to Live from My Drum Room. This is episode number 23. And as I said, my guest, of course, my old friend, the one and only Steve Gorman. Um, I want to take a second. We're going to talk about this book uh, during the next hour or so. If you haven't read this book, I highly, highly recommend it. Looking good. Hey, Carolyn and Carl Sterling and everybody that's watching. Thanks for tuning in, all you guys. Um, Los, of course. I'd, I'd be really disappointed if you weren't here, Los. So thanks. And Carolyn, always nice to see you. So anyway, Steve put this, uh, wrote this book. I want to say it was released in 2020. Might have been late 2019. Um, I read it last year, 2020. If you don't know who Steve Gorman is, he is the drummer and a founding member of the Black Crows, a band that was and still is very near and dear to, to my heart. And this is an amazing book. Um, Steve's an amazing guy. What can I say? Besides being a talented drummer uh, and, and everything that he does, basically, he's successful in. But uh, this is a fabulous book. And I, I had no doubt it would be a great book because he's a great writer, very smart man. But quickly, I just want to uh, make a couple of quick announcements, tell you that um, as of this morning, you know, last week I talked about hitting 400 subscribers on YouTube. Um, I'm up to 448 as of this morning, 448. That's two fours and an eight. Um, pretty amazing to think that I was, you know, in just a, a week, I've grown by 48 more subscribers. How many more subscribers I can get, I don't know. I can't imagine there's that many more people that, that are on YouTube that I could get, but I'm hoping to maybe hit 450 before, you know, it starts to sort of, you know, peak at 450 before it starts to decline. So if you haven't subscribed, please subscribe to my uh, Steve White. And Steve White will be here with me next week, by the way. And it's pretty cool because I'll just say there's a little history between Steve White and Steve Gorman. Steve, I know will remember this, both Steves, that um, Steve White was subbing for his brother, Alan, in Oasis about maybe 20 years ago. Um, and they were on a double bill with the Black Crows, Oasis and the Black Crows. And uh, I had a great hang with Steve White here in Boston. And I didn't know Steve well at the time. And he was soon to come over to Zildjian. So it was a, anyway, it's, a, it's great that we have Steve Gorman today and Steve White next Saturday. So tune in for that. So anyway, um, I think that's all I have to say at the moment. I'm going to bring my friend Steve Gorman on in just a minute. And... Uh, 20 years ago, exactly. Yeah, that's what I thought, Steve. I thought it was, I think it was the summer that I got married, which was 2001. Anyway, we'll talk about that another time. So without further ado, everyone, please give a big hand for my pal, Steve Gorman. And here he comes. Jonathan. Good afternoon, my friend. Have you got me? Am I here? I'm here. I'm good. You probably said some really funny things that I totally missed out on. Nothing. I was just waiting on you. What You're still a, not there. You I'm still, still here. What kind of a lame ass show am I running here for crying out loud? You're not hearing me at all. I'm hearing you now. Oh, well then, well then we're up and running. What's we're the up and running. I, I, I took my ear pods out and I'm using the speaker in my trusty Mac. And just like that, I'm, I'm good to go. So 
I sound best uh, with lower fi quality audio wear. Like the more the more complicated you make things, you're gonna just get all the the worst parts of that lustrous timbre that everyone's enjoying. Oh, but now. You, so that's the thing. You have that radio voice, and oh. it would sound and great in these, but. The cheaper the speaker, the better the better it sounds. Trust me when I say that. I, I've experienced all manner of of uh, of technological breakdown, John. I know of what I speak. Oh, too funny! Thanks for doing this, buddy. And I'm sorry about that minute or so of snafu, but it's quite all right. I got to watch you panic, and and that's always a treat. <laughs> uh, it's just like old times. This is it just is. Like- <laughs> It's just like old times. How many times have you made me panic in 31 years? You know, I mean, boy, I don't know. Um, More more than more than I I should have. I'm sure I I, I filled the quota and and I and I kept it. I kept that number up as high as I could over the years. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, you did. All always in good fun and always a lot of fun. So 31 years this summer. My gosh, I know I hadn't even thought about that. Well, I thought about it this morning. I was just thinking about seeing you, and I'm thinking 1990. Yeah. One years. Wow. And uh, for anybody who doesn't know, yesterday, Steve and his wife, Rosemary, celebrated 27 years of marital bliss. And uh, and that's congratulations on that. Thank that's you, sir. Fantastic. Got that is a... Uh... That is a startling number when I think back to where our heads were in 1994. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, th- I think we were both 28, and now it's been 27 years together. That's kind of crazy how that works. Wow. I hadn't even thought of that. You're right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, marital bliss for a, a, a healthy percentage of the time. Yeah. And then, and then, and then uh, my wife looking at me for the rest of that percentage of the time and going, really? Really, that that I think this one through, but I'm uh, I'm happy to say that I'm still very uh, I'm still very lucky uh, as, when it comes to life. So uh, all is well on the home front. Yeah. No, it's she. She's a. I mean, I don't know her very well, but I think I know her pretty well, and she's a good. I mean, obviously, she's a great woman and a really solid woman, and and a great mate for you. And um, you guys are a great team. That's what it takes. You know, that is exactly what it takes. Go figure. Teamwork, John, it's kind of a big deal, no matter what the endeavor. (laughs) I'm learning it, man. It's this past year has made everybody a team player, I think. Let's hope. Yeah. If nothing else, the people who haven't figured that out, we can all admit freely that they're sociopaths now. So that's good. (laughs) That's there's there's always an upside. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so you heard me say Steve White is watching. I don't know if you're if you're watching on Facebook, but um, but there, we have a whole bunch of folks watching. And uh, Jeremy Stacy is watching, and Dave Maddox. Jeremy Stacy, or as I call him, the talented Stacy brother. Good, that's great. <laughs> I'm sure his brother appreciates that. I'm sure he does. And Steve White, uh, boy, that's that's two. That's like four drummers right there in those two guys. I know. And then you add Dave Maddox, and it makes it. Maybe I, I, it's it's I, I it makes me want to get off this thing right now because I yeah. feel like, oh, my God, that's a that's treasured company for real. Very, very sincerely. Great, great guys. Great, great guy. Steve White will be on with me next week. Um, Dave Maddox was on a couple of weeks ago. And Jeremy Stacy, I haven't told you this yet or slash asked you yet, but you will be on in the near future, uh, Jeremy. In fact, I was thinking not to 
digress too much, but I was thinking it could be cool to have Jeremy and uh, Pat Mustelato and uh, Gavin Harrison, the, the uh, King Crimson drummers on, but that's, that's another time. So that's another conversation. Anyway, the answer to the question, how far can you go slinging cymbals for a living? It's pretty far. <laughs> Pretty far. Look at the guest list. My God. I know. I know. And and just the fact that you and all these guys like answer my emails or text messages is a feat unto itself. Just I that surprises me every day. You know, when I well, it's um, you know, we when when you're not around and, and and we're all together and your name comes up, there's always that pause. And it's like, ah, John, well, you know, it's always been that thing of. We got to be nice to John. I mean, my God, you know, if if we turn our backs on him, what's left? <laughs> and, you I, know, I don't I, even know where I'm going with that, John. You know, everybody, <laughs> you're you're the most beloved man in, 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 in any sector of the music business. You know this. Well, that's very kind. Thank you, Steve. I, I, uh, that's very kind of you to say that. So, well, it's very true. Now, are we? What are we here to do? We're going to break down this Senate bill they just passed, or what's yeah. actually happening here? Okay, I, I saw that it just went through. Breaking news: one point nine trillion. One point nine trillion dollars. Um, a lot of vintage drums with that money. Yeah. Happen. Okay. So that. Okay, we got that out of the way. Uh, what else, man? Love to talk about this for a few <laughs> minutes, if, if you don't mind. We can do that. Um, we can it, do that. It was released. I mean, it's it's a minor detail. I said earlier, like setting it up that. Was it released in 2020 or was it late 2019? It came out in the fall of 2019. 2019. Okay, that's right. Yeah. You remember um, you got up early and ran to the bookstore with all your friends. Yeah. Yep. That I did. I waited in line. I waited <laughs> in line. And they they were it was the last one. And th- it just so happened that it was signed by you. Oh, look me. at that. And and uh I did actually, I don't know if you remember, I did buy one. I bought a copy and then you said, no, I'm going to send you one. And which was very kind. And I think I gave the copy that I bought from Amazon to, to Jim McGathy, our old friend, Jim McGathy. Who I happened very to nice. Say, yeah. And I thought, pay it forward because Jim was about to buy one, but hopefully he still bought one. It's quite all right. I'm not sweating the details here, baby. Okay. I, I, I do remember when a guy at the publishing house said, I said, I said, well, what are book sales? What's a good sale? Like, what are the numbers these days? And he goes, well, kind of like records. You know, it's not like what it once was. I said, yeah, but what, what do you do? And he said, at some point, he goes, well, look, just know this. For every book that's sold, like five or six or even 10 people are going to read it. And I was like, wait, really? And then it's amazing how many people said to me over the last year and a half, like, oh, I finally get, well, my brother had it. And then he gave it to his wife. And then she gave it to the name. And I finally got it. I'm like, that's really how that works. And it's fine with me. I, I'm thrilled. The more people that read it, the merrier. I'm not, I'm not chasing beans here, but it's a fascinating. Uh, and I thought about it like, oh yeah, yeah, that's what I do. My, you know, my wife buys a book and then I wait and then a friend says, oh, I'm reading this book. And I'm always like, yeah, well, when you're done, throw it my way. And then, now I'm on the other side going, oh man, this is payback. I've been borrowing <laughs> books my whole life. Uh, I didn't think of it that way, but you're right. I, I would have thought you'd say, wait a minute, what? You need to buy your own copy, but no, that's, I, 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 it's really, that's, it's, it's the, there's nothing I would sweat less. It's kind of like, you know, the, I mean, on the musical side, the first time the black Rose ever had a conference call with their manager and Pete said, guys, I want to talk to you about, well, there's this thing you're going to hear about. It's called Napster. I mean, I remember that phone call Wow. and him explaining it to us and none of us really getting it at all. But, but, but the, the only thing we figured was, well, 
I remember having the realization that, oh, so no one's ever going to buy our old records anymore. Okay. <laughs> well, that kind of sucks, but yeah. you know, I, I, we never, or at least I certainly never put too much thought into things like that, that I have. I mean, I already had no control over what the record company did. Why would I, you know, there's, you can't control any of it. I'm not going to lose sleep on that stuff. This was so great about this book too. And it, I, I had meant to sort of brush up a little bit before today, uh, which I didn't do, but I remember it well enough from reading it that there's, so many great nuggets in it about just the dealings with the record company stuff that, you know, we've been friends a long time and you, you would share things that you could share with me in those days. And obviously mm -hmm. you couldn't share everything, but there's so, I think I told you this at the time I was, everybody watching at home, I was like texting Steve while I, while I was reading it, like, and I get to a point and I go like, Holy shit, I can't fucking believe, you know, and you're like, believe it, baby, or whatever you, you know, like a one sentence <laughs> reply, like, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but there's, if you haven't read this book, you have to read it. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, um, it's so uplifting. No, I, uh, <laughs> no, this, it's a laugh riot. Go ahead and say it, John. It's a laugh riot. It I actually think it is a laugh riot. I mean, I mean, it's, it, there's, there's, it's, I mean, just, but I guess that's because I have a, I look at all bands. I think, it, I mean, they're, every band is a clown car. I mean, the best bands ever, the internal dynamics are, are always silly. I mean, it's just the inherent nature of a bunch of guys that want to get together and rock together. You're going to have a lot of drama. You're going to have a lot of miscommunication. You're going to have a lot of issues um, under the best of circumstances. And some of it's just as simple as, the reality of your life once you're touring nonstop, which is you never get away. It's as simple as you never get away from each other. I mean, yeah. local bands don't fight. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, right. you play a gig and then you go back to your old job, you go back to your day job and then you rehearse in a week and whatever pissed you off, it's over. Right. You know, I, you know, it's, it's at least that was our, you know, that was the way it was with us. I mean, until our first record came out, we were never all together. We never got sick of each other because we were never around each other enough to do that. And it's, and sometimes it's just that, I mean, that's, it's every band's experience is just that simple, you know, people that get along great, you know, six, eight weeks in a van, you then tell me how, how well you get along. It's just life. Right. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that's what makes. And now, now to that point, I also will add that we had a little extra mustard <laughs> in, in the makeup of the band, you know, uh, if you will. Uh, it was always, there was always some tension and there's always this and that, but I mean, everybody, as far as we knew was all on the same page. So, you know, we had a, we had a, a hell of a run uh, complete with a lot of moments of uh, veering in and out of various ditches. Like just again, like just about every band. Yeah. 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 And, and it, it was just interesting. And, you know, and again, I think if any, anybody who followed the band probably, probably had an idea of some of these ups and downs, but just the sort of ups and downs of like, of, you know, some thing happening internally amongst the guys in the mm -hmm. band. And then, and then all of a sudden you're, you're on tour with Jimmy page and like, things just couldn't be brighter. Like things are just, right. you guys are, you've, you've, it's like, everybody's just got this renewed energy and focus and excitement. And, and I could totally see that. Like it's, freaking Jimmy Page, you know, and I remember when you guys did those days with the Stones, you told me, and that was 94, I think, right? Or 95. 90, 95, 95. Okay. 95. And, and I remember at that time, there were some, 
leading up to that, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but leading up to that point, there was some internal strife. And then you guys went out and, and did some dates with the Stones. And I remember you saying to me, you know, we just kind of looked at each other and said, look at these guys. Like if we, we could, we could be, we could have, a, we have a legacy. We could build on that legacy. We could be what, I mean, not to say that you'd be the Rolling Stones, but, but you saw the potential for what sure. the future could be. Yeah. Just to. Yeah, we were. And, and I say we, I mean, I'm as guilty as anybody, you know, we, we were never, we, we would lose perspective with the best of them. You know what I mean? Real fast. We'd get on the road and, and I do think part of that comes from a, a, when a band is founded by two brothers when they're still in high school and they never get away from each other. There's an inherent sense of, you know, a big decision we have to make about next tour is still somehow connected to the time you left me after gym class and didn't give me a ride home. I mean, and again, that's something else that any two brothers uh, that work together in a, in a band or any two sisters or any siblings, you know, it's, it's incredibly difficult to separate uh, lifelong back and forth from the band, you know? And, and so we, we dealt with a lot of that, but, but everybody had a, their own struggles with trying to maintain perspective, you know, like it shouldn't take seeing the Rolling Stones up close to realize like, Oh wait, we've, we've actually accomplished something pretty great and it's pretty special and we should try to hang on to it. Like it shouldn't take that, but it did. And, you know, like I said, I'm as guilty as anybody. Um, I think it's just a, you know, there's for everything great that happens to a band, to, to an artist, to anybody who, you know, your quote unquote dreams come true. Um, every step you take forward is another, it is, is every opportunity is also an opportunity to step away from a natural evolution or growth, emotional or spiritual or intellectual growth as well. You know, you're, you find yourself being rewarded for repetitive actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, real simply like, yeah. Hey, that set list was great. Play the same set tomorrow night. That's as old as the Hills. Like you go promote the record you do and your whole life turns into, it's just, you're reliving the same day in a different city. And uh, you know, you, it, it's, it, I mean, something just that simple. I think it really does have an impact on everybody's ability to step away from that and actually grow up. I, the summer, that summer of 95, shortly after that stones tour, I turned 30. And I remember very clearly thinking like, holy shit, I'm 30 years old. <laughs> and I would have friends from college or my older siblings, or people would come to shows all the time. And, I would have conversations with them where, you know, they're looking at us like any friends do. They come to a gig and that's their big night out, you know, like, oh, man, you guys are great. We're rocking, you know, and so everybody you see is in a great mood always. Like, you know, after a few years of that, you, you kind of have to remind yourself, not everyone's in a great mood all the time. It's not that I'm a great guy. They're just having a night out drinking free beer. Like, that's why <laughs> they're so excited. They got backstage passes. It's got nothing to do with. You know, we're making their life better for six hours, you know, yeah. and but and, and then you have conversations and then it would dawn on me like, wow, everybody's, you know, everybody's taking very different types of lumps and everybody's maturing at a different level than we are. And I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's different. You know, you, you have to at least acknowledge like this is a strange little landscape we're in. And I don't know. I just I just always was. And I think part of it is having seven older siblings. I think I was always a little bit more aware of just how unique our world was and how it it wasn't. It wasn't in the stars. It wasn't predestined for us to have this run like it's because we went out and worked hard and had some lucky breaks. Yeah. You know, just like anybody else. Um, 
because I and and there was always a sense there's a there's a lot in the book that to me when I read it it's all just that's a huge part of it like you know just being the one guy in the band who's the youngest of a huge family I just had many many people that I spent my entire life in a house with and I watched their paths and they're all doing great things and successful in very different pursuits and everybody's you know all eight of us did very different things and everybody did really well, but everybody worked hard. And, you know, I just had that kind of perspective. And the other guys in the band initially were all, you know, this all they knew in a certain way, you know, from their own, for their families anyway. No one had older siblings. Yeah. And I always think it kind of, it, it saved me in a certain, in, in a very real way. Yeah, no, I, and, and I, I recognize that too, the influence that having, that your older siblings had on you too, the closeness of all you guys. I've, I've met some of your siblings at shows. And yeah. And, uh, and that, that I, I, I know that that's a huge part of, of your development, really just your ability to deal with things. And like you say, your perspective and how you look at things. And yeah, I think, you know, I had this, um, I had a growing up as the youngest in that family. Sorry. I got, there is a, um, you know, you wait in line your whole life. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I got a jacket in fourth grade and I was, it was new and it was the first piece of clothing that I ever a liked that B wasn't someone else's first also named Gorman. I mean, I remember like I wore it to school, like, yes, sir. It was, it was like a windbreaker, but it was a fake Fonzie leather jacket, but it was just oh, yeah. a little nylon windbreaker. And that was the coolest thing in the world to me, man. I was, I was on cloud nine. Um, and, and I think that that just, it's just a, there's just, there's no way to separate my experience from my family, from what I then brought to the band, both, both strengths and weaknesses, like everybody. Yeah. But they were certainly very unique within, within the context of my band. Talking about that. So, you know, and I know I've, I've, I've bugged you about this for as long as I've known you, but I think your story as a drummer is just, it, it's, it's pretty fascinating and that you started so late in life compared mm -hmm. to like a lot of drummers. Yeah. Started. And so you were in college really basically when you. Yeah. The first time, I mean, well, it, I was in, when I was in fourth grade and still living in Severna park, Maryland, I joined the school band uh, in percussion. And so I got a snare drum and a set of bells, like a little glockenspiel type thing. Mm. And, and I had to learn how to play the yellow rose of Texas on the bells. And I was like, I'm not here for the bells, man. Uh, I'm I want to rock. Um, and, and when, when, when I joined up, I, uh, in my maniacal own mind as a nine-year-old, I pictured a drum kit. Like I thought I was going to rock yeah. a kit. Guy gave me a little Ludwig snare drum and a big plastic case and said, here you go. And I was like, what the hell is this? You know? So I think like a lot of young drummers in their own head, it was uh, quite a disappointment to realize I was supposed to learn rudiments and practice like on a, piece of rubber you know yeah, and learn how yeah. to you know read rudiments that did not last long at all in fact i was asked to leave the band because i just didn't i never once took the bells out and tried to learn a song on them i was like well i'll do the snare drum stuff but i'm not touching those bells <laughs> so you know that was uh problematic and like uh, it's funny because i was told i was no longer in the band but my parents had bought this stuff for me so every friday i still took it to school like i never even told them i wasn't in the band <laughs> one of the benefits of being the eighth kid right there they're too tired to check up on you you know what i mean like <laughs> they're just like great looks good steve's got a hobby you know they didn't they weren't asking questions they were just trying to get everybody out of the house um yeah <laughs> so 
but you know that, but, and so that didn't last when I was the summer after fourth grade, we moved to Kentucky. Um, I got there and I had a record player and a bunch of albums and, and I was already really obsessed with, with, with records and music, but I didn't pursue drumming at all anymore. I mentioned it a couple of times, like, Hey, I really want to drum. And, and it was not even, it was never taken seriously. Um, you know, I, I got summer jobs, like a lot of kids, I could have easily made a plan and saved up and bought a kit, but I, I don't, I think I was just at a place, this is like, you know, mid to late seventies. I'm in sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth grade. I'm obsessing uh, over new bands and records yeah. and, and always air drumming and playing along to records. You know, I'd go down and I'd put on wings over America or, or a Beatles record or an earth, Wind and fire record or a Devo or the, record, whatever. Or the Bee Gees. Or the Bee Gees. Absolutely. A Bee Gees record. Yeah. Um, whatever I was listening to at the time. And I would sit there and I, you know, I would air drum along and I knew what I was doing. Like I, I knew enough to know what you're supposed to be doing. Like my right foot's that thing. And the, here's the toms. I mean, I was yeah. always watching drummers. And along the way, at some point, I think I just realized I don't, th- there was no path to like, if I buy a drum kit, then what? None of my friends play music. None of my friends care about the bands I like. I just didn't have this sense of, oh, this will turn into something. I was in this really small town. Uh, when I got to college to just bring you up to speed, uh, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go to college. I'll find some people there to play me. Surely there'll be some dudes there to be in a band with. Yeah. Um, but the main problem for me was I still hadn't played drums yet. You know, all of a sudden I'm like, I'm in this position, like along the way, when I should have been in the basement learning how to play, I was still just thinking about how cool it would be to be in a band. So I, I did approach it as, you know, I'm not a drummer. I'm a dude in a band who knows how to play drums. Maybe like that was kind of where my, my thing was coming from, but and so throughout, so my freshman year, I met a kid with a drum kit, you know, right away, there was a guy on, on campus. And I, I said, let me, let me take a whack at that thing before I'd sat at a kit a couple of times in high school, I'd come across drum kits and sat behind them. But first time I ever sat down and really played for 10 straight minutes was my freshman year of college. And right away, I was like, man, I knew I could do this. like, I can do that. I'm playing like this sounds like yeah. I know what I'm doing. Um, I had no stamina and I had no, you know, sense of anything other than how to play a straight beat really. But, and so New Year's Eve of 1983, my freshman year of college, my older brother and some friends, they had had a band for years. That's whole, it was like a performance art piece. They never played a gig. Yeah. They would put flyers up and announce a show. And then they would put up flyers canceling the show. It was just the thing they did to amuse themselves. Uh, and so, but they, you know, one of them could play guitar and then they found a bass player and suddenly I was the drummer, like, perfect. He's played for nine minutes. Let's have a, let's have a show. He's and so we played, yeah, we played a new year's Eve party and it was just in a house in Nashville, Tennessee. So new year's Eve, 83 to 84, we learned maybe a dozen songs and played them all three times. Beatles songs and Ramon songs and, you know, brand new Cadillac by the clash version or, you oh. know, real simple stuff. Every song was the same beat, just sped up or slowed down. <laughs> but, but just doing that, like a party in, in front of a bunch of drunk friends. I mean, that, that really did. That was it. Like I woke yep. up on new year's day saying, guys, let's be a real band now, you know, come on. And to my chagrin, the guys looked at me and went, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> We're all about to graduate. We have lives to live, you know? And so that I spent the next two years looking for the right people, like trying to find my band. And it just never happened. I was in Bowling Green, Kentucky. I had some good friends that loved music, but no one that played, no one that was interested in playing. 
And lo and behold, you know, I end up as a senior in college kind of panicking, like this is not ever going to happen. Damn. I thought this was, I thought surely something was going to break. And I, I did know. nothing to make it happen. I literally, yeah. I, was like, I still, I look back and I'm like, I was just sitting around like waiting for the phone to ring. And then honest to God, one day the phone rang <laughs> and it was an old friend of mine. And, and he said, this is all, uh, this part's in the book, you know, an old buddy said, man, you know, I'm dropping out of school and I'm, I'm, you know, he's playing guitar and he's writing songs. He goes, do you want, you're playing drums, right? And I was like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. All the time. <laughs> and, uh, and that was it. I was just like the right guy at the right time. And it's funny. Cause he called my dorm room, but no answering machine. There's no telling how many calls you miss in college. And if I hadn't answered, he very clearly could have called someone else. Yeah. He knew yeah. who was a drummer. Like it's one of those, I happened to be in my room when he called and, um, you know, that, that's literally, I, he said, do you want to start a band with me? And I said, yeah, I mean, without hesitation. And he said, um, he was going to school at Hampshire up in, uh, like in Massachusetts, Hampshire yeah. college. Yeah. And he said, I'm going to move to Boston. It's a great scene. Let's start a band. And I said, done, like no question. Cool. And then, you know, so for about a month, I was in a band in Boston, a city to, I'd never been there. <laughs> and I was able to tell people I'm in a band. Yeah. We're, we're, we're in Boston. I'm going to head up there after Christmas. And then, uh, you know, around Thanksgiving, he called and said, man, it's too cold up here. Let's go back to Atlanta. Cause that's where he was from. I said, Hey, that works. Let's go. I mean, it was just so random to me. I didn't give a shit where it was going to be. I just said, all right. And, uh, you know, saved up some money. got a couple of weird jobs and, uh, worked at this blue jean distribution warehouse factory gig for a little while, you know, saved up some money and, got a bus to Atlanta, uh, in February of 87. And, you know, but, and so like I had literally spent at that point in time sitting behind a drum kit uh, without a question, less than 24 hours cumulatively in my life. Um, but most of those hours were spent playing in front of people, like playing at parties because we had picked up a few more over the few years, never rehearsed. We just showed up. And like I said, I had this, I had a couple of good beats by that point just sped them up or slowed them down. And, uh, and I was ready, but I, but I did, I did spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about drumming in, in a very real way, like thinking about what drummers do yeah. and what drummers bring to a band or what I've, I, I, I got my whole mindset about drumming in those years, just going to see bands, listening to records over and over and realizing what moves me and what I, the drumming that just sticks to me almost like, you know, in my DNA, it's all the all these drummers that just had a real natural bounce to their playing. You know, they were swinging. There's some great fills, but that wasn't the point. You know, it's like just serve the song. All these things that people talk about. I didn't have the language to describe it, but I knew what moved me and I knew what I felt a drummer was supposed to do. And so when I got to Atlanta and started playing, I at least started from a place of, you know, my job is just to not mess up. Like, like I got to hold down. I got to hold the line. Yeah. And if I get from A to B in a reasonable sense, if the tempo doesn't move too much, then everybody else is going to be okay. You know, I'm, I'm providing the, the ground literally like I'm planet earth. Everyone else is going to jump on top of me. And so, and, and I also knew I was behind the curve. I knew I was getting a late start. So I had no, I didn't have time to go figure out how to play like Keith Moon and Neil Peart. You know, it was like, I don't have time to learn fills. I just got to deliver. I'm just here to deliver the, the milk lady. <laughs> like, I, I'm just going to drop this on the porch, put it in your cereal. I'll see you tomorrow. It was very, very, uh, it, it, it was both incredibly simple. And, and as we've all learned 
I was also, you know, my, my greatest strength was also my greatest weakness. I, I couldn't play all that stuff, but I also knew I, I shouldn't play all that stuff. I, I acted like I had everything in the bag and I had great taste. And it was that weird line of this guy is so tasteful and this guy doesn't know how to do anything. It's a fine line to walk in the early days of a local musician, but it, it worked out. That's funny. Well, I'll just say I, I, I'm, I'm really impressed that at that young age you knew. But I mean, that's something that it takes a lot of drummers a long time to understand what their real job is. Like, but you, you did know that. I mean, you did. Well, but, but I, if I, if I'd had a kit as a high in, in high school and I was in my basement, I don't know that I would have cared to understand that because I would have figured out how cool it is to play fills and do drum solos. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I just, every time I was ever sitting at a drum kit, I was, there was a guy next to me holding a guitar. Like I had never played by myself except for literally for a handful of minutes over the years. And so it was just all I ever played was songs. And and again, it's a, it's a great strength and it's a great weakness. If you, and I made sure to act like I knew what I was doing and, you know, you can get pretty far on charm and you can get pretty far on natural ability. And then you learn it as you go. And then you look up one day and you go, Hey, I pulled that off right on. Yeah. It's like the the classic move we all do when you, when you make a mistake. And you play it again a second time. To yeah, uh, just uh, just magnify that to an entire lifestyle, John. That's that's what we're talking about. <laughs> oh man, too much, too much, and too modest because you know you 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 definitely got more going on, and and that's for oh, sure. Oh, I, 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 hey, make no mistake. I I, I, I see. That's the thing too. Like I, I, my my brain knew what I was doing uh, in terms of walking that fine line, but I would never lack for confidence. I mean, I definitely noticed early on when I got to Atlanta and suddenly every band I see is not my competition, but my, you know, all of a sudden I'm in that world, you know, like I got to Atlanta, like I said, I got to Atlanta. I was already in a band. I didn't even own a drum kit. I had to go buy a kit and I go to rhythm city and I buy this Pearl export kit, you know, and I spend every, I had $700 to my name and I spent $699.99 on a kit. That's a true story. Like I left with a penny and I was like, okay, I better make this work. Cause I got to go get a job and find some gigs. And, but I, you know, I, but even then, you know, it's like, it's like when I played my first ever club gig, it was with the band that I initially started. It was called Mary, my hope. Mm-hmm. And we opened for Mr. Crow's garden, which eventually became the black crows. So it was this club in Atlanta called the dugout and I'd been seeing bands there for a few months and it was finally our first show, this new band, first gig it's Friday night. It's an all ages club and it's literally sold out. There's 600 people there. Wow. Or 500, whatever it held, it was packed. And I was caught, you know, I couldn't catch my breath for the first song, but I, it, it felt a lot like, like when I played sports, you know, there's certain games you get too hyped up for. You get too excited to play the crosstown rival and you spend the first quarter trying to catch your breath. Yeah. And then once you're sweating and once you're into it, you're just going. And it was, you know, literally, I mean, I remember a lot about that very specific gig. I mean, I can see it and I can feel it still, you know, it's in from 1987. And by the time the gig ended, it was just like a ball game. Like by the time we got to the end of that set, I was just in charge. I was like, playing very aggressively and with great confidence, you know, cause it's like, you just got to be in the moment. And it's like, and, and I had, I had already been watching drummers and I was always, I was always, I'd already been picking up drummers in the local scene. They would 
be there'd be a hesitance. You know, they'd come out of a fill and and they weren't they just they just didn't have confidence. You know, they just weren't yeah. attacking the rim, like to put everything in basketball terms like I do. And I was like, yeah. and I would sit there and in my mental notes, like I'd done my whole life, I was like, well, I might fuck this up, but I'm not gonna fuck it up because I get scared. Like, you know, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to find out where the one is and I might be wrong, but no one's going to wonder where I think it is, <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm running this shit, you know, and it was just a total, it was, it was just sort of a jock mentality, but it was like, I got this man, you know? And yeah. by the time that, um, that band, Mary, my hope with me and the band, we played three, all of three shows. And then I switched bands right. and I can remember the third show we played, which turned out to be my last one. Like, going into that gig, like I'd already been on tour for a year. Like I just felt so, and it wasn't that I was great, but I had just already learned enough to know like, okay, well, I, I, I know what not to do. Like I, I, I have, I absolutely know what not to do. And that's, that's the, you're on your way. If you figure that out. And I felt like I knew that right away. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I, I can totally see that too, that in knowing you that, um, and it's not, and it's not, it's not ego or anything like that. It's just, you, you're comfortable yeah. in your own skin and you, and yeah. you, yeah. You were, no, I, well, I, and I mean, yeah. drumming is, I mean, I've always seen drumming as such an expression of personality. You know what I mean? It's just my favorite drummers anyway. And any great drummer is just, it's, you're putting yourself, you know, you're holding sticks and those things are translating with your feet into who you are as a person in a lot of ways. I, and I mean, when I'm watching guys in bands, obviously session drumming is a different world and different different gigs are different gigs. But the drummers that I always love, my favorite guys who were all in bands, like it was all about the band. You know, you just felt something about that person listening to them. And so that was a part of it, too. And and a lot of this does go back to my family. Like I, I knew very well who I was. And, yeah. and, I, and, and I and this is not kicking dirt at all. A lot of guys start bands at 18 and 19 years old because they're trying to figure out who they are. And they did spend their high school years locked away in the basement, learning how to play that instrument and try to pour their heart and soul into it. I didn't have any of that, man. I was out playing sports and running around and listening to records and going to see bands, but I, I, I didn't question who I was. And, and granted, I, you know, you a lot of times you learn, well, I've, I, I, I didn't know that about myself. I mean, there's a lot of, yeah. growth that still I needed in front of me. But at 21, 22 and 23, I was just playing like me. I was like, well, it can't be. It's my band. I mean, I, it's we're doing this together. So if I do it, it's right. I had that sort of ability. Like I wasn't comparing myself to other drummers. I was just making sure I was doing what felt right to me. That's yeah. And, and that's unusual. I mean, for a local band scene, you know, a lot of guys, like I said, there were drummers I'd watch them play and I'd be like, man, that guy could play circles around me. And he's thinking about everything he does, you know, and I didn't have that problem. <laughs> and so who, who were your early, I mean, I, I have an idea of who your, your early influences were, but like, who were some, like when you were younger and then oh, when you really well, into- Ringo is, is job one. I mean, just, you know, I, I got two Bee Gees records when I was five and I loved them and I just listened to them obsessively. Um, I got two years on and then that first best of Bee Gees album, the, the, the gold colored one. Yeah. Um, and I was just love the songs. I, I would just sit there and listen and listen and listen. And one of my older brothers was just losing his mind because, you know, why is Steven listening to the Bee Gees again? You know, it was like a <laughs> and he came down. My brother, Tom, he lives in Denver and he's a guitarist. He was the other musician in the family. And he came into the the, the room downstairs 
we called it the pool room because there was a pool table there, but that's where the record player was. He comes into the pool room and he has meet the Beatles help and rubber soul. And he goes here, he just take these and stop playing the Bee Gees. Like it was just <laughs> classic, you know, just older brother losing his mind, having to hear lonely days for the 900th time that day. <laughs> and, and I put on help first and I just was like, and I had heard the Beatles and I'd heard songs on the radio. This is in 19, 19- late 70, you know, so, I mean, obviously I'm aware as a five-year-old kid, I put on help. And when Ticket to Ride came on, you know, I just, I just started air drumming. I started, I started playing along to it. I just was like, oh my God, what is that? And it, it, it is as clear a memory and a sense, I, I can feel it still so clearly, just this thing grabbing me. And I didn't even know what, I mean, I invented air drumming as far as I know, because I'd never seen anyone else do it. And I was just flailing my arms and it was just that beat of ticket to ride. And that was it. I mean, that, that was it. And I, from that day, um, I just wanted to be a drummer. I just felt like I was a drummer. I mean, a big part of my ability to pick it up so quickly was it wasn't because I wanted to be a drummer. It's because I just, I, I was always a drummer that just hadn't done it yet. Yeah. And that goes back to, to when I was five years old, honestly. And so. You know, those three albums, Meet the Beatles, and, you know, just think about some of the, just, I, you can still put on Meet the Beatles and go, man, that sucker is swinging like crazy back there, man. You listen to those early tracks. Yeah. Um, and by the time they're doing Help, a song like Ticket to Ride, or even something like, well, you know, and anything on those records. And, and then I started immediately expanding. And then I went up and I got Beatles 6, like American release, like with eight days a week in Kansas City. And, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I just started going through my brother's other records. And then I started buying my own. And I mean, by the time I was like nine, I had I had personally gotten my own entire Beatles collection. You know, like I was every if I had three extra bucks, I was going to buy a Beatles album. You know, I'd save up my 25 cent allowance or whatever. And. Yeah. steal 25 cents from Dave or Doug and all of a sudden I got enough for another record. And, and, you know, it was just that. So Ringo for the first, I mean, until I was 10 or 11, I, I, it was just stamped on my brain, Ringo's drumming, you know? Um, and, and, and from, that's a pretty good place to start, you know, because he was obviously, there was so much feel and it was all swing with him and all feel yeah. and all bounce, but they were, you know, the Beatles really, they were playing like country songs and they played their version of blue songs and they played all these things. And, you know, by the time I'm seven and I'm diving into the white album, you know, I'm just like, <laughs> what the hell's happening here? You know? And, yeah, yeah. And, and then, you know, getting into revolver and listening to, she said, she said, and air drumming to that, it just gives you a headache right away. I'm like, what, you know, so yeah. it was more than enough for my little brain to just keep digging into those records. And so, I went right from the Beatles into there was a solo Beatles run, but all of a sudden I was really into new wave and punk when that all started, you know, I, uh, you know, I loved Clem Burke just killed me, you know, um, but I was really into Devo and that first, you know, the, are we not men album, the drumming on that record's absolutely insane. And so, really? and then I had a brother who was really into earth, wind and fire. All of a sudden I started, once I opened everything up and I still look back now on all the records I listened to at any stage of the game, there's none where I go, why did I listen to that? That drummer sucks. It's all great drummers. It's all, yeah. it's a big part of all of us. So just as a fan, it was all seeping in so much. Um, and I just, you know, and it's funny because I didn't listen to Led Zeppelin ever. I mean, I knew it, you can't get away from it, but I didn't sit down 
like with headphones and put on Led Zeppelin records until I bought that first kit. I was 21 years old. No the kidding. first time I put on Led Zeppelin one and listened start to finish, like, like you're supposed to. And, and that was the next time I felt what I felt when I heard ticket to ride. Like, I just was like, Oh, that's exactly what everything's supposed to sound and feel like. Like yeah. it just, it was like putting my foot into a shoe I'd been wearing for 10 years. It was like, Oh, Holy shit. How did I miss this? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's, it's Ringo and, and, and Bonham are the two guys that I always just, I, it's, it's to me because it's just me. Those are just the guys that, that sound and feel like I think you're supposed to sound and feel more, more so than anybody else. Yeah. And there's a million great drummers. I, I, I rip off something from every drummer I ever see or hear, of course, because everybody does. But those are the two guys that are just the, the bread and butter of everything I ever tried to play. Makes sense. And I can definitely hear both of those guys. And I can definitely hear a lot of John Bonham in your, in your playing, you know, in terms of <clears throat> how you hit. You, you definitely hit with, mm-hmm. some, with a backbeat. Well, and, and in the early days, uh, how I hit was just, I, it was always important to find the biggest sticks possible because I couldn't afford to break them. And I wasn't about to learn how not to break sticks. <laughs> like that would have, uh, you know, again, I'd watch guys play a whole set with one pair of sticks. And I'd be like, how do you not break those things? And that was the sloppiest striker in history. But, you know, but I always focused on what it felt like as opposed to what, you know, more so than what it sounded like. Um, I didn't feel like I knew enough to, know if my drums were adequately tuned or you know i'd get into conversations with drummers in the late 80s and they'd be talking about cymbals and i'd be like yeah that one's not cracked <laughs> you know i was like that, that ride's pretty good man it doesn't have a crack yet i'm gonna keep playing that you know it was very uh i i just i i always knew what what was worth paying attention to and then i knew what i wasn't really you know the first time i went into a studio i looked at the desk and all those knobs and the first time and i went i okay, I'm never going to learn how this works. It's too, I don't have that side of the brain operational at all. I said to the producer, I go, do you know what every one of these knobs does? He goes, yeah. And I was like, okay, cool. Then I don't need to know any of it. <laughs> well, you know, talking about feel, um, I've told you this many times that the, I mean, all your records, but the first time I heard you play the first record and it must've been hard to handle. Like, was that the first single that from, Shake your mind. It was no, it was the third. Jealous again and twice as hard had come out in the winter and spring of ninety. And okay. then Hard to Handle came out that summer. When we met, Hard to Handle was the single. I guess, yeah. And I guess I'd I'd heard those. I'd certainly heard yeah. Jealous, Jealous Again before that. But um, but I just I, like it's so funny hearing you talk about this stuff because I complete you know, I was completely looking at you from a a, a whole different standpoint. I, mm-hmm. I think I might have heard your story from somebody. Maybe our friend, the late, beautiful Lissa Wales, who I, I, I know you knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was, you know, and, and I know, she, you know, she would take pictures of all the drummers. And I feel like we right. had a conversation about you and, and before I actually met you. But I, listening to your playing on those rec- on that first record, I thought you were this, like, you know, you have an incredible feel. And I just, you know, I thought you were somebody who'd been playing for a long time and, um, but it just tells you how natural it all came to you is my point to all this, Steve, is it's, it's, it blows my mind to think that you'd only really, it was your first time in the studio really making that record. And, and, and it's just such a natural organic 
feel that you have that's yeah it was and it was it wasn't easy i mean it, it was it was I, I was really intimidated going into that studio the first time i'd never played to a click track i'd never tried to do anything like that um and it took about a you know it took several days to get one track that was usable i mean and that wasn't all on me i mean the whole band wasn't good at playing together and and mm-hmm. you know we were I mean, I've, I've always kind of prescribed to the notion of if you're not in over your head, you don't know how tall you are, you know, the, it, just in life. I mean, yeah. and, and and I feel like when the Black Crows went into the, to make Shake Your Moneymaker, that we were all way in over our heads. We weren't our bass player had just joined like that month. I think we had played one show with him before we went to make a record. Um, our guitarist had just been with us for four or five months and we'd never played more than. I think when we made that record, we had had one four night in a row run in our entire existence. Like we had rarely ever played back to back nights. One time we did four in a row, but we were on such a steep learning curve in 87 and 88. Like when we did four in a row, that fourth night, we were like, man, we're actually pretty good. You know, like (laughs) all we needed was the chance to get in there. You know, we just needed to, we just needed our reps in the batting cage. And then, yeah. Uh, you know, but but the truth is, we didn't get those until the record was released and we were put onto an actual tour. You know, we never we were always kind of playing catch up. When we got to the studio, we were all really stressed. We were all we felt like this is our only shot we'll ever have. And it's like it's like and it, we weren't thinking like selling records, we're thinking about making a good record. In that regard, we were like, this record has to be great because, you know, we'll never get another chance unless it's great, unless we really come in. And we weren't. I think I think the way I describe myself, I think that's the way that Mr. Crow's Garden and then the Black Crows, as we all were kind of like that. Like, I mean, I used to say we're the worst band in Atlanta, but we're the best band in the world. I really believe that, you know, like, yeah, we suck, but there's a lot of talent here. and All we got to do is figure out what to do with it. And and luckily, we had a producer who knew exactly how to guide us to to play to our strengths. I mean, that record was that record was absolutely everything we could have possibly done. Like it was. It's the first time we ever truly outdid ourselves. And then we had to become the band that was good enough to go out and promote that record. Cause we weren't, you know I mean? We, we got finished with the sessions and I, the first time we ever listened to it sitting in a room, the mixed and mastered version. I mean, we just kept looking at each other going, Holy shit, you know, cause uh, it, it was, it, we were very impressed with ourselves. You know, we set a really high bar and we got there. But then it was a whole nother process eight months later when it's released and we have to go be that band every night. That took a while. Yeah. But you, but you got there. You yeah, got sure. There. Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody, everybody, you know, I mean, Chris was the same way as a singer. Like he's obviously great, but he hadn't, he hadn't done that before, you know, rich as a guitarist, like we were all at the same level, I think developmentally yeah. um, we were all, we knew there was something between us, you know, there was an obvious chemistry within the band. When Jeff joined and when Johnny joined, they added to it. They didn't detract it. You know, just we put the right pieces together and it was just a matter of figuring out how to make sense of it, you know, but it was so all the stuff I'm talking about when I'm talking about me as a drummer and my mindset, I mean, the band was kind of the same way. Yeah. Yep. It makes sense. Yeah, You guys were all kind of in that same, you know, I, I, and I mean, I, I, I'm just thinking about the fact, like you said, you know, like Steve White and Jeremy, Stacy, you know, these guys that I, I hold them in the highest regard. They're just phenomenal drummers. And they're also guys who were students of these instruments, you know, and no one in the Black Crows was that way. Like we all had this very different, almost like a punk, you know, we'll just figure it out when we get up there. I mean, we were really that band, you know, like we would play shows in 1988 
And right before we go on stage with our eight song set list, Chris would go, Hey, open, let's do that one. We learned, we did it practice last night. And I'd go, we didn't even come up with an arrangement. He goes, let's just figure it out. You know, we would, we had this bizarre notion that we could go up and, and, and improvise and none of us knew how to play anything. You know, it was just, we were improvising songs, not playing, not parts. It was just yeah. an arrangement. Just do the verse and the chorus twice. And then let's see what happens. And we would just go up there and fall on our faces you know, and I would see drummers, I would see musicians that were just, like I said, playing circles around us. But, but, you know, when you're talking about a rock and roll band, chemistry is, is ultimately the, the, mo- you know, the intangibles are what it's all about. Yeah. And so we were loaded with those without literally any of the patience and, and, and self discipline to have the tangibles lined up at all. Yeah. I was just going to say, I, not to inject a personal anecdote, but, um, a, one of my first bands, my first sort of real band, I, I had a bandmate who could be watching, Mike McKee, who was exactly that guy. And that we we would we had a bunch of our own songs. And just as we're about to do the tune, he'd go, "Hey, let's let's do a reggae version of this. Let's do like yeah. let's, let's yeah, completely change. Like, are you what? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a there's a healthy mix of yeah. um, in, in any band. There's the guy that. That, that comes up with the plan. Then there's the guy that can't possibly be expected to follow the plan. And then there's the people, you know, then you've got the people that are just like the, the, this guy's the glue and that guy's the, the, yeah. that guy's the, the flamethrower. I mean, you know, in, in a perfect world, a band has a little bit of all these things. And, and we certainly did at that time. I mean, I, you know, where the black crows went astray or ran afoul of our own strengths was just not every, everybody kind of forgetting how important everybody was like, you know, respect is more important than love in a rock band. You know what I mean? You've got to, yeah. you know, there's a Venn diagram and that center circle doesn't have to be equal sizes of everybody's contribution, but everybody's contribution has to matter as much as everybody else's. Like, you know, you, you, you can't ask everybody to, to, to it's it, like in a five piece band. It's not like everybody has to have 20% of anything, but the percentage they do bring has to be acknowledged and respected by the others. And, and in that way, it is like a basketball team. You know, it is, it's, it's, you know, the five best basketball players never end up on the same team for a good reason. They're not going to win a lot of games. Um, and I look at, I look at rock bands the same way. I mean, the chemistry within great bands is always undeniable and it's always, uh, you know, something that, that manifests itself in, in successful bands. It's something that's in play 24 hours a day. It's not about when they're just holding their instruments. It's, you know, the life of a band, uh, the great majority of time, you're not playing music. And so it's the contributions everyone makes otherwise that, that really play a large part in whether a band's going to go anywhere or not. Yeah. Well said, well said, you know, I was just going to say that we met that summer of 1990, you guys were on tour uh, with Aerosmith. Mm-hmm. Met you right here at good old the former Great Woods and remember Manson. how old Aerosmith was in 1990 and nobody could believe they could still do it 31 fucking years ago. <laughs> it is funny to think. I mean, because I look back on that and all the bands, you know, it, it, it was shocking. Like they were in their early 40s and we were on that tour and people were asking us every day, "Can you believe they're still doing it?" I know. And of course, my answer was, "No, God, they're ancient." <laughs> We went out with Robert Plant. He was like 42. And we were saying like, he's really doing good for his age, isn't he? You know, it's like so ridiculous. (laughs) I know. I know. I think about that stuff too. I think when I see, I'll see somebody on TV or something and I'll go, wow, he was like, 
a little older than my son is right now. And I thought yeah. that when I was a kid, I thought yeah. that was old, you know, like all of us, John, uh, <laughs> present company excluded have aged. You have managed to stay the same. Uh, it's a fact. It's a joke. Everyone says, but it's true. I just want to, uh, obviously I'm going to credit Kelly with that, but somehow you look exactly the same after all these years. Thank you, Steve. I, I've, I've definitely got some a healthy amount of gray hair. Uh huh. Yeah. Sure thing. You're just doing that so we feel good. I know it's not real. Oh, oh, you're very kind. You're very kind. But you know, I was so I was going. I was going to mention that that two years later, when you guys were touring on the second record, '92, mm-hmm. to me it was you know like the difference between well, first of all, the first time I met you and the first time I saw you, you guys were you know the the opener, the support band, and then here you are as a headliner mm-hmm. um, on your second record, and it was really. It, like you could see the band had, and it must, it, I would attribute it to just the fact that in those two years, you guys, two years, you guys worked your asses off with yeah, you know, touring and, and we played a lot of shows. Yeah. Did, doing a lot of shows. And it really showed because you, you had this um, maturity, I guess is the best word, like mm-hmm. to, to, to come out as a, as a band. And, and it's like, you'd been doing it all along. Do you know what I mean? It's, it was, it was hard to believe just the last time I saw you, you guys were the new sort of, the new band and here you were yeah yeah well it it yeah i think we did 350 shows for shake your money maker like actual gigs not to mention all the promotional stuff you do in addition to that um and like i said we had just never we hadn't done that as a local band like i i i see you know i have a nephew who's in a band now called illiterate light they're on atlantic records they're phenomenal before they ever put out a piece of music, they played 300 shows themselves. They're just in their little Subaru driving around up and down the East coast for years. We never did that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. We, we, so, so when you first saw us on Aerosmith, we had done two tours in clubs, you know, like six week tour with one band, a four week tour with another 10 day run over in England. And all of a sudden we're in arenas with Aerosmith. So we were way again, way in over our heads. Like to go up and try to get a ten thousand people to pay attention in a forty minute set, but by the end, but from the beginning to the end of that tour, we were like a different band. You know, we were we were still really the growth the 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 growth was spectacular. By the time that Shake Your Money Maker tour ended, you know, like well over a year after that, it was we we were way past the point of even thinking. We just walked on stage like it, you know it was just we just hit that line. And so, you know, I remember those summer of 92, that would have been at the Orpheum yeah. uh, in Boston. Those shows in particular were just, were, were stomping. Like that was, a, you know, we, we were at that place where it was like, I mean, I've always said like the Black Crows were, you know, we weren't the, there's no best band, but to me, a great band, like you, you can compare REM and Metallica if you want to, it's kind of pointless. The reason they're both the greatest band in the world is because they're the best band that they they can be. You know, like REM is as good as they they did what REM was there to do. Metallica did what Metallica was there to do. Um, they didn't get in. They didn't let other things get in the way of where they were trying to go as a band. Like you know, they started together. They moved on mass. They did this thing um, day in and day out for all those years. And 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 for a time, the Black Crows. That's when I look back and say we were as good as anybody. It's that. I mean, you you could look at the Black Crows and not care for the sound that band made, but still you'd have to go, that's a fucking great band. You know what I mean? That's and so by 92, I think we were definitely in that place, you Absolutely. know, where it was just every, you know, our worst night was a really good night. And mm-hmm. and again, my mindset always being 
you know, the guy like the, as long as the floor is solid, like it was always trying to raise the level, like what's the worst this can be. You got to keep making sure it's a little better. You know, it's like from the bottom up is how you build a great band. Um, yeah. You know, you, you got to have, you got to have that, that safety, making sure that, you know, that nothing happens when, you know, you got, you got, it's like a great goalie or whatever you want to say. There's something there where the, the worst case scenario, it's still a pretty, pretty fucking serious show. And we were certainly there by 92. You know, that was that was that was job one in my mind. And the whole band was just, yeah, we were locked in. That was a good time. Yeah, absolutely. Locked in is is the is a great way to describe it. I just a couple of quick questions I'm gonna throw by you, Steve, that some folks have been putting in here. Um, my friend Anthony Cusina, who joins me every week. He's asking, what future dreams do you have for yourself musically, uh, musically speaking? What? Uh, well, my band Trigger Hippie was, uh, we put a record out in 2019, right? Like a month after I put this book out. Um, and we had just gotten started really getting out and hitting the, hitting the road uh, when the, the world locked down. So yeah. first and foremost, I just want to get Trigger Hippie back playing shows. Um, we have a ton of songs that we're going to have to record at some point. You know, I don't know when we're going to release new music, but that's my that's my musical focus. You know, I, I love that great the, the record we put out, Full Circle and Then Some. I love it. We're really proud of it, and we would have been playing all last year had uh, had things gone to plan. And so we're just now seeing like out offers for outdoor shows for the summer. We'll, we'll get a few things together, but we have yet to have that big powwow where we actually lay out a plan just because it's, it's too early to know what we can actually do when. But um, I mean, I mean, that's that's just the one thing I focus on. I, I hear from people. There's always things out there in the weeds like this. Hey, would you be interested in doing this if this, this and this all happened? You know, I, I get a lot of those calls like, <laughs> you know, like, hey, if these nine dominoes fall a certain way, I'm going to need you. You know, and I always just say, cool. I mean, I'm here. You know, I'm, I'm always I love playing and, and I like playing with people I've not played with at this stage of the game. Um, like I I. I had a session a couple of weeks ago, just a one afternoon thing here in Nashville. And, you know, if I walk into a room with new people and play something, that's always just thrilling for me. It's still, you know, just, just playing, just being in a room, making music with people. That's, that's great. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm happy to take whatever calls come in and, and uh, when I can get trigger hippie back up and going, we'll do it. I remember you, you played me when I saw you, believe it or not, two years ago, I was in Nashville and we had lunch that day when when Rick Moran yeah. something at Harry McCarthy's place. Yeah. yeah. And you, you played me some of the stuff and uh really great. So that record's out now. I need to buy that record. I'm surprised I didn't send you one. Wow. That's not That's, cool. I'll no, I'll <laughs> I'll buy it. I'm gonna buy it. Yeah, because you'd played me some demos and there was yeah. a really cool song on there that um you, you said was sort of inspired by a drummer friend of ours. So I don't know if that made it on the record or not, but Oh, that's on the record. Oh, me, me, like a, a like, like, like a one-armed man trying to sound like Steve Gadd. Oh, that's it's on the record. So it was like a, it was so great. It was. I remember listening. Going <laughs> it's like, the, uh, it's the poor man's fifty ways to leave your lover beat. Yeah, let's just call it what it is. It's not the poor. I'm gonna. I remember that. I remember it was. Yeah. Really cool. So, and by the way, Todd Trent says hello. Todd Trent. Yeah, Todd Trent's watching. And he says hello. Master of the universe. Yeah. Love you, Todd. It's been far too long, sir. He's a good man, that Todd Trent. He's a very um, good man. Yeah, he is. So, Steve, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned, I'm glad you had that question because I wanted to talk about 
at least make sure we talked about Trigger Hippie and um, see if there's any other little things that I want to touch on here. We're getting sort of into the past the hour mark, so I don't want to hold you up all day here. Um, Yeah, we talked about the book a little bit um, or a lot of bit. Well, um, you know, I'm a Leo. Uh, Let's see. What else can I tell you about myself? Um, That's it. That's all I got, John. Just, you know, think of me in August, you know. And that's plenty. Let me tell you that that in itself and and, in all your life's work is plenty. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the Stereophonics, too. I was just going to talk about some other bands that you played with and, Mm -hmm. you know, Probably most people know the history that you'd left the Black Crows at a point in the around 2000 or 2001. Maybe? The Black Crows folded up shop at the end of 2001. Yeah. Um, and I, I like, I'm the only one who said like, Hey, or I'm out of here, you know, like, but it was done for all. I mean, if you'd asked the members of the Black Crows in 2001, that was the end. Um, and then I, yeah. So in 2003, my friends stereophonics, uh, a Welsh band. They were, I was living in LA then and they were on the West coast and their drummer, Stuart Cable, who's a dear friend of mine had a health issue pop up. And uh, I filled in, I, I, they called like literally said, can you play the Fillmore in San Francisco tomorrow? <laughs> and I said, sure. You know, and uh, they just put out a new record, but I, I had a copy of it. So I was like, yeah, just send me a set list. I'll see you tomorrow. And so that was a great case of winging it for just all the, just nothing but fun. Yeah. And then a couple of days later, they played actually back in L.A. And I did that gig, too. And that was that was that was it. It was like fill in for these two shows. Thanks. We all had a laugh. And then Stewart's issue wasn't quite handled. And they said, well, can you do four more gigs? And I said, sure. And then there was a break. And then suddenly Stewart left the band. And then it was like, can you come on tour? And, yeah. you know, this whole thing where I was going to fly to San Francisco for a gig on a Sunday night turned into a 10 month tour. Um which was incredibly uh, rewarding for me. I learned a whole lot just being fine, just being on, uh, I'd been, I'd just done the black crows for so long. That was the only band I had from 87 to 2001. It was all black crows. And then after about a year sitting at home, I'm in a different band and seeing how they operated and just the perspective I had on, okay, what parts of that life are really weird and what parts were weird because it was the black crows? You know, it's like (laughs) a lot of it is a lot of it. Everybody's experiencing, but it really helped me get a great clarity on, well, this can actually just be a blast. (laughs) Like this is really kind of fun. Um, when, when it's not your band, you know, when, when, when someone's arguing and you just walk in and drop a one-liner and leave and no one's mad at you for not weighing in. And, you know, it's great. It's like, this is pretty cool. Like if I'm going to, if I'm going to be in an uncomfortable situation in a weird room, it's great that it's happening in Barcelona and it doesn't impact my life. All right. You know? And and, uh, so, but it was great. And and it was, it was an important tour for the band, I think, because they just lost a founding member and it was good that I was there because I, I was able to, you know, I'm a solid player. You know, the, the, the shows didn't suffer. And, I was an older guy and able to just, I think I just provided them with a little bit of a steadying presence when they really needed one. And, and we talked a lot uh, during that tour about me staying on and, and the, the singer of the band, Kelly Jones was, we were, had been very good friends and he was always, I could tell he was, by the time it ended, he was looking very differently. Like he wanted to get in some loops and samples and, 
they were looking for a younger sound and they were looking for a younger vibe. And, you know, I'm 10 years older than those guys and, and they're just turning 30 and I'm 40. And it was kind of like, you're not the right guy for where we're going, <laughs> which I was like, yeah, I don't think I am. I mean, I, if they had continued more down like the rock and roll vein of the record I was touring on, but their next record was a whole nother planet from what would have made sense for me, you know, but I, it was great. And it was, it was really fun. It's funny when people say like, Oh man, you were in stereophonics. I'm like, no, not really. I was, I was on their tour and we had a great time, but that's as far as that went. Well, I, I remember seeing you at the Orpheum where I'd seen you many times before with the black crows. And, okay. uh, and I was probably around 2004 if I had to yeah. guess or yeah. And, uh, and I honest to God, Steve, I remember having been with you many times, uh, previous when maybe there was some instability in the black crows this was you would look like you were having the most fun and yeah. you like so relaxed and so happy we sat out in the bus i think before or after the show and maybe had a yeah. like in that driveway in the orpheum and and you were just so chill it was like the, the old steve of when i first met you that just was well the, yeah there was a, a good period of time in the 90s where you know, the black crows was just like a powder keg, you know, and it was, it wasn't that it, you know, we didn't, it's not like we didn't have a lot of really great moments, but there was never any idea of knowing when it was going to explode, you know? And, yeah, and I just probably went too far in my efforts to make sure that none of my friends were collateral damage when it, when it blew, because there were situations. I mean, Todd Trent's on this call or he's watching this conversation. There was a, there was a gig in California where he could give you more details than me. But I remember like there was, it was, there was a whole thing was about to go down between the black crows and another artist on the tour. And I remember Chris looking over and going, Todd, we're going, are you coming with us? Like he was looking like, are you going to fight for us? And you know, it's just these moments where I'm looking, I'm like, here's this guy. He's, he's the Lud at the time, you know, Todd was the Ludwig dude. And he's a friend and we're talking about, something else and you want him to go throw a punch at Lenny Kravitz's tour manager. What the hell's wrong with you? You know, it's like, there was a lot of stories like my family and a lot of my friends, everybody was around for some really bizarre things. And, you know, I just go on and like, well, that was Tuesday, but you know, you know, it's weird. Cause like three years later, someone goes, man, remember that time when, and I just think, Oh, I was kind of hoping you'd forgotten about that, but you know, no, not the case. <laughs> so again, again, like the difference between that world and then going out with a bunch of friends where like, you know, the guys are stereophonics, like they, whatever the hardest day on that tour was, I didn't even notice. You know what I mean? It was yeah. like, if somebody was having a bad day, it was like, Hey, what's up, man? You know, I never worried about someone getting, you know, a, a, an errant punch to the, to the wrong face. <laughs> that's what, that's what you needed back then at that point in your life too was, was, Oh, it was great. It, it was, I had an absolute blast. I really did. But I remember us going to some, some baseball games at Fenway park with like the serious hookup on a couple of different occasions. Oh yeah. 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 Um, you know, and that's, that's a, for anybody, you know, who's a baseball fan or, or I should just say a sports fan, Steve has right. like hookups everywhere he goes because. <laughs> <laughs> well, I learned early on in the nineties, like, uh, you know, if I want to not see any member of the black crows, there's a few places I can go. Golf course is a good one. <laughs> That's going to give me a reason to be somewhere for six hours. And I will not encounter another member of the band. Uh, baseball games, another good long lasting endeavor where I'm probably not going to bump into anybody in my band. You know, you have to, you have to cultivate these 
safe spaces when, uh, you know, one, one poorly thrown punch can end a tour. You know, I can't, I can't break a finger. We got problems if I do. No, sorry. No. Yeah. No, we, those were some, those are some fun times though. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And so, and, and you have your radio show, your classic rock show that you're doing right now. I do. Steve Gorman rocks is uh, five nights a week. It's on Westwood one cumulus uh, stations. It's about 50 stations, coast to coast, different times, depending on it's seven to midnight East coast, six to 11 central. And then out West, different stations played at different times, but yeah, it's, um, it's a whole lot of music, uh, every night, five nights a week. And, uh, it's nothing like when I used to do sports talk radio, I don't, I don't do nearly as much talking, which is a good thing. It's, uh, it's a, it's, I, I, I've been, I saw getting into radio, uh, like, like cl- doing classic rock or doing rock radio for years. I, it was not something I could ever contemplate while I was still in the black crows that just would not have worked. Yeah. And so I went down the sports route, sports talk radio first, doing a really weird sports show where we talked a lot about music anyway, right. but right. it was just sort of a, you know, it was one of those things like, well, one of these days I'm going to get over and just start doing rock music. And so that started, that started uh, in the fall of 2019 as well. The the Trigger Hippie record in my book and this radio show all hit within like a month of each other. And so in my head, they're all sort of connected. It's all the same time frame as when these three things started. Uh, but that's going great. And it's, you know, it's there's not it's not that often you'll hear a song on there that you haven't already heard a lot of times. But if there's a I was certainly guilty of forgetting how much I loved so much of this music from like right now, the sweet spots, late seventies to mid eighties. Yeah. And that's my middle school and high school years, man. It's like, I, you know, I'm amazed at how often I find myself just like lost in some tune and the song ends. I'm like, Oh, I'm supposed to talk now. (laughs) Yeah. It's great. I mean, I, you know, it's like, I used to say, I'm sitting around listening to music anyway. I might as well do a radio show too. Yeah. Yeah. And make some scratch for doing it, you know, and it's a, it's a, not? it's a, it's a great, it's certainly been a, uh, nothing short of a blessing to have that kind of a gig for the last year. I can tell you that I don't take that for granted any day, uh, yeah. for, for, you know, trigger hippie got shut down like everybody else. But again, I have this other thing I do. Um, and here in Nashville, you know, the number of, obviously we all know so many musicians who all of a sudden had to come up with a plan B real fast. And so, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't look at that radio show as anything but but a lucky break. Trust me. And yeah, no, that's amen to that, Steve. And so we're at seven to midnight. Um, do you do it? Do you tape it during the day or do you do it live? Yeah, um, no, we have to do it now. It was live initially, you know, yeah. um, but since for the last year, everything is done. I do it late, you know, in the afternoon. I do it as close to live as I can. And yeah. we can up we can update during the show like there's. You know, like I, I record all of my segments, you know, I, I'm on the mic for eight, seven, eight minutes an hour tops. Um, and I know what the for, but but we make adjustments like I, I can I'll be record. I'll get the first show. I'll get the first hour uploaded and my producer gets it into the system like right before the show starts and then the next hour. And so it's 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 as live as something like that can be, given the circumstances that we're all in, which is we're not in a radio studio and we can't all be together, you know. So um, but, you know, like anything, there's breaking news. If something happens, I can still be talking about it that same hour, but it's not as live as it would have been normally. Gotcha. Okay. And by the way, Tony Bronigal is watching and he said golf kept me sane on the road for years and a tour of baseball stadiums. 
Hey man. And, uh, and, and it's always important to know a, a good clean laundromat too, because you're never going to bump into your bandmates at a laundromat. It's a double bonus. You get clean clothes and you had some privacy. That's right. Yeah. Very important. Laundry day. There's a laundry place right off the Boston common. Been there many times. I don't know <laughs> what it's called, but I can take you right to it, man. That yeah. was all that. That's it. You find, you pick the moments of Zen where you can find them. And there's something about just watching your clothes tumble as they get dry, staring at it. You know, it, it calms the soul. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Life we on have the made- road. Many a good lunch, you and I, when you'd be in town for a period of, of a couple of days, I'd always be able to, when you weren't on the golf course or, or weren't at a baseball game. Um, well, we, the, the best thing, the thing I did always, the, the, the coolest thing about being a theater band is you, you're in the same town for a few days at a time. You know, like, I'm not saying I wouldn't have wanted to get to where we were an arena band. I, that would have been great. But I always did enjoy, you know, setting up camp for three or four days at a time instead of a different place every night that was a and so you do get to know a lot of you know it's it's an amazing thing like the number of coffee shops and the number of record stores and the number of things you know in all these various cities you know i've never been there on my own time but you feel like pretty connected to a lot of places pretty quick yeah i bet and and scott pistol crockett was asking uh and and we know the answer to this was mark ford still in the black crows during your during your tour of duty (laughs) <laughs> yeah well he i was there for the entirety of his tour of duty um yeah. his two tours yes yes if he was ever there then i was there as well right a fine fine guitar player he most certainly is one of the one of the finest I'd, i've i've seen he, he, he was the cherry on top we had a really really good rock and roll band ready to roll and then when he joined it was that 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 missing element uh that that completed the whole thing for that run in the 90s yeah absolutely mm-hmm incalculable contributions that man made to our music. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Steve, you know, we're, we're approaching the 90 minute mark. I I've, you've been so generous with your time. Is there anything else you, you want that, that explains why I'm just crawling out of my skin, John. <laughs> I thought you were going to say why, why you're so hungry or, uh, no, uh, man, I'm good. I, you know, I, I'm just, I'm just, I'm here to serve you brother. Wow. You're- if if you're done, I'm done. That's how this works. I, I'm not. We're just we're about halfway through. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> let me see if there's any questions. People are always typing things, and I I don't see them till later, and I kick myself because there's sometimes some really good questions. So give me just a second here, Steve, if you would. And I can do that. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Let's see. Are there any questions uh, before we? Uh, Charlie Drayton. Wow. Oh Charlie my gosh. Just- yeah. And Jeremy and Steve are still here. Steve White. and Tony what, what a, what a ah, Charlie Drayton, man. What a lovely gentleman. And what a badass. I, I just have goosebumps hearing his name. Hey, Charlie. I know it's Charlie. been far too long. Yeah. What a, what a gentleman, what a musician, my old buddy, Jerry Donegan from Zildjian, who you've met a time or yep. two says, hope Steve, hope you are well. As far as I know, Jerry. <laughs> All right. Best I can do. <laughs> well, I probably have missed some really good questions, folks. And I, I quite all right, man. Quite all right. Um, let's see. Here, here's the answers to a few questions you didn't ask. Uh, the 80s, I was all about the Lakers, not the Celtics. Oh, yeah. Five rings to three. I take magic over bird five days, seven days a week at all times. Um, 
but that said, I was heartbroken uh, when Len Bias passed. I was looking forward to that rivalry continuing. Uh, I didn't admit Jordan was the best basketball player ever until the 2000s. I just couldn't give it up uh, over Magic, but I finally have acquiesced. And I still support, for no logical reason left on earth, the Arsenal Football Club. <laughs> Where do you put uh, Michael Jordan and, and LeBron James in terms of? Well, I mean, it's I don't I don't like to compare eras, John, I, I, for a million reasons because yeah. I will overthink this in a second. Uh, I, I you know when you when you just do the blink test, it's MJ, but you know LeBron is going to retire with his own lane. Uh, he'll be the leading scorer in NBA history when it's all said and done. He will have been to far more uh, final series than Jordan did. And, you know, LeBron James has taken two teams to the NBA finals where the guys he was playing with, it was like you, me, and Steve and Jeremy was the other starting, you know, the other four starters. <laughs> like he, the, the 2000 Cavaliers literally was LeBron James and nobody else. And he took them to the finals. Yeah. And he's also going to play until he's 40. And he's also, you know, there's just a million ways to look at it. But, but what Jordan accomplished and how he did it, you still got to give him the, you know, it's, it, but, you know, we're splitting hairs. I, I, I knew I would get a great answer from you on that, a, a, a perfect answer. Yeah, I, I know that I'd much rather, uh, I, I, I think that um, off the court, you'd probably have a more enjoyable conversation with LeBron James because Michael Jordan is, as we all know, after watching the documentary, kind of competitive and kind of crazy still. So, you know, I give LeBron props for, you know, being able at least, at least putting on a better front of being like a normal dude when he wants to. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. I love that, man. That was an amazing documentary. It was great. It was yeah. fantastic. Oh. Um, well, Dave Phillips, I, I Dave Phillips is uh, asking, I don't know if you know Dave, he's in the UK as well and, and uh, works for Dave. I believe you're still working for Gretsch as Artist or DW Gretchen in the UK, but he's asking if you're going to be on the Black Crows tour when it starts this year. And I will not be. You will not I be. will not I no. will not be within one million miles of that tour. I have not been uh in my mind the Black Crows and the Black Crows ended for me in February of 2014. Uh very, very comprehensively ended back then. So yeah. it's a long time. I mean, the last tour was 2013. So it's 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 a pretty good ways in the rearview mirror for me. Yep. And, and Dave, I, you know, not to be a, a pitch man here, but I strongly urge you to, to get this book if you haven't already, because <laughs> it'll fill in a lot of the blanks. It'll, it'll. Yeah. It'll, yeah. It'll do that. It'll definitely help you, you know, understand the, the, uh, the thinking there. So, but Steve, what we've done here, it's pretty funny. I have a couple of old friends watching uh, my friend, Gary Ballard, fine drummer here in Boston uh he said come on Johnny come on bird kicked Lakers butt <laughs> you got a lot you got you started the rivalry all over again here the Celtic Lakers sorry rivalry. man I you know the, the numbers don't lie you know it's just it's what it was I know and have they now tied the Celtics with 17 championships well I I will say this I'm no longer a Lakers fan I left them in the late 90s but um I believe they have yeah. I think they have I believe you know, they have when we had 16 and they had like 12 it seemed like they'd never yeah. this because they weren't neither team was was winning championship yeah. man i got to the boston garden once the old the real one um yeah. in 93 it was the only time i ever and it was against it was against the bulls i saw jordan in the boston garden in 93 and uh that was pretty special i mean like i grew up hating the celtics i spent my life just 
And I walked in the Boston garden and it was like being at a, it was like the, Oh my God, I'm here. Like, you know, I had rooted against that team for, but I was just in awe the whole time. Cause I'm a, well aware of all the greatness that that building contained uh, historically speaking. And, you know, I'm looking for all the dead spots. I'm waiting to see if I can find them. And just that organ, nothing else. You know, oh, it was yeah. like going to a game from the fifties. It was incredible. And, but didn't you play there? Didn't the black crows play before it became the new garden in like 95? No, no sir. Never played the garden. Never played the garden. Why did I think you? you we did the Orpheum a million times, and we would go do you know the she- Great Woods, whatever that was called at the time. Um, <laughs> it's funny you could always tell when a musician first hit the road because they still call amphitheaters by the first name they ever knew yeah. it as. Yeah, everybody does that. Um, but no, we never played the garden. We did uh, we did the Opera House once, like in two thousand eight. That was kind of I was there. shockingly beautiful place. Like I'd walk by it a billion re- times. I think they had just redone it or something because it was yeah, it was it was yeah. nice. Um, and I think you played Worcester a few times, right? I saw you with the Centrum. Yeah, Jimmy we Page. did that with, with Jimmy with Paige. Yeah, that's right. And I then saw. we did it. We did it some other time too. I don't know, man. We were in Boston a lot. Played the old Channel back in the day a few times too. Yeah, and never you, played the rat. I wanted to play the rat. We never got to. I think by the time you guys arrived, yeah. the rat was gone. But maybe yeah. the Lupos in Rhode Island. Is oh yeah, something? we played yeah. Lupos. Yeah, a few times. I saw you in a few different joints. And then the, there was a place called the Living Room in Providence. I think that was the first place we ever played there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there was another place, and I, I, I the last thing that just jogged my memory was another place in Worcester. I saw you in '93. It wasn't the Centrum. It was like a it was a, a theater type venue. Okay. Um, other people might know the name of it, but uh, anyway. Uh, yeah, Gutterball opened for us that night. They were great. They were great. Gutterball. Um, I know what you're talking. About. I, I springtime. I remember that. Yeah. yeah, that was that tour. Yeah, we did. We did. It was probably yeah because we did Boston in the in the summer before, but then we did Worcester like in the spring. Same tour. Yeah, but yep. it was it was like six or seven months later. Yeah. I had, it was, it was like general seating and they had chairs set up, but of course everybody was standing and everybody's taller than five foot six. So I had to stand on a chair to watch you. Didn't make, I appreciate you, you know, the, 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 the effort you put in, you know, just to make sure you could see me and I'm back there on the floor. I'm not doing you any favors. Didn't even have a riser. (laughs) Sorry. It was worth it, Steve. It was worth it. It always was Johnny. Thank you, brother. All right, buddy. This has been so great. Don't go away, Steve. I'm going to I'm going to end the stream and say goodbye to the folks and then I'll join you.